0: Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, sobering. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everyone. We are on to episode 88 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us exposure and I think we're up to over 200 reviews, which is awesome. It's great to know that people are listening and enjoying the information and getting a lot out of it. Also think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there as well. Don't forget, stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear Stephanie's message of hope and I would love to hear your message of hope and you can go to the addictedmind.com on the side, there's a little tab and just click share your message and record a 90 second audio clip can be anonymous. You don't have to use your name, but give a message of hope for people out there who are struggling, who want to hear that recovery is possible and need to hear that. So if that's a fit for you and feels right, Please do that. I'd really appreciate it. I want to get your voices onto the podcast so that other people can hear that recovery is possible. Change is possible. And there is hope if you are out there struggling. So on this episode, we have Josh Reichert, and he is going to talk about the recovery community called Recovery Dharma, and he's going to talk about mindfulness, Buddhism, And the Dharma, and how that can play into gaining a sense of calm in your recovery process. He shares a lot of his own personal story and how this was meaningful to him to get a deeper sense of calmness and peace in his life really enjoyed talking with josh and i think you guys will enjoy listening to this episode as well so let's go ahead and start it all right everybody welcome to the addicted mind my guest today is josh reichert and he's going to talk about recovery dharma mindfulness buddhism and addiction josh you want to introduce yourself Sure, Dwayne.
1: So I'm Josh Reichert. I'm in Boise, Idaho right now. I've been involved with Boise's Recovery Dharma community for, gosh, it's been since 2014. Now, Recovery Dharma, under that name, just kind of came into being here within the last year. Our meetings, we called ourselves Refuge Recovery for a long time, which is something very similar to Recovery Dharma, but there were some name changes, splits in the recovery path. So that's another story. Anyway, so Recovery Dharma, it's just an addiction recovery peer support group, meetings all over the nation, uses Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path as a way to structure recovery for individuals. My personal story is You know, recovery began back in 1995. I was uh, involved with 12-step groups, issues with alcohol use disorder. After that initial several years, many years, recovery from drinking, you know, eventually found myself uh, moving away from 12 steps and developing an interest in meditation and subsequently the use of meditation to help myself with some depression. And then eventually kind of rediscovered the need in my life to have a recovery community. And I just sort of fell into this Buddhist addiction recovery path under the name of refuge recovery. The person that started refuge recovery in Boise was a, a young man who had kind of befriended a local Buddhist teacher while he was in jail. And this was really early in Refuge Recovery's history back in 2014, a little before a book was published. But in any event, so that was when Boise's Refuge Recovery Committee got, meetings got started. But Boise, I'm guessing the path of Boise's recovery dharma is similar to what it's been in other communities in that starting out as Refuge Recovery small groups with some alliance with other groups through an online presence.
0: So it sounds like you started going to the 12-step, you were getting in recovery, and you started looking at mindfulness and Buddhism, and somehow it spoke to you. What was it about it that, for you, helped you the most?
1: Mostly that it was something that recognized my individual capacity to have a life where compulsions, addictions were not the focus of my life, but still where I recognized that that was sort of a risk for me. So it was a chance to identify with a recovery path that didn't identify with the addiction. So I was, uh, you know, one of the challenges with the 12-step program was an identification and even a sense of bonding that comes through emphasizing the actual activity or substance. And as I saw this capacity for mindfulness to teach me to be aware of my present moment experience, I kind of thought, wow, my present moment experience that I want is the experience of, you know, seeing the world clearly, being able to participate in life, and just kind of being alive and being happy. And but at the same time, recognizing that I do have certain kind of risks to my wellness. So it was very much this idea that here's a spiritual path, it uses mindfulness and meditation, it recognizes addiction is a risk, but it addresses the recovery from addiction as what's happening right now in my life as I live, rather than a focus on a past behavior or an identification with a set of behaviors for the purpose of maintaining recovery.
0: So very in the present moment. Yeah present
1: moment with an awareness that the challenges that take me away from the present moment are somewhat associated with cravings and addictions. And in a very general sense, you know, after the initial concerns with a compulsive or addictive behavior are addressed, then it's just, you know, living life and knowing there's a tendency for that kind of behavior. And present moment awareness is where that ability to stay in recovery is exercised.
0: Definitely agree with that. I love mindfulness. It's a big part of my life. And it brings you to that space where you can kind of be in that moment and just accept all sides of it. And it's just there without having to necessarily react to it. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people in recovery, there aren't
1: options that are put in front of them at the very beginning. I work in a behavioral health hospital, and primarily when patients with various kinds of addictions are given referrals, they're referred directly to 12-step-based recovery programs. And I know from experience that many people don't resonate with that. So having this additional option is really valuable, in addition to have it be something where it's an alternative to the need to rely on a higher power, an alternative to What's the other word that I really like? Something that recognizes a modern incarnation of our knowledge about recovery. The mindfulness aspect of things has been scientifically validated very thoroughly through studies, and both with dealing with cravings, being able to be with the discomfort of a craving and sit through that, as well as the practice of when those cravings have lessened to be able to really thrive in the moment and no longer have those cravings be the focus and no longer have the fear of the past be something that's in the forefront of awareness.
0: So it can give people an alternative. If they don't necessarily resonate with the 12 step, this might be an alternative that they could use that would fit for them. Definitely. Not just an alternative. Frequently, it's a
1: supplement for people. I think people will look at recovery Dharma as a way to practice meditation and learn about meditation as a supplement to what is part of the 11th step in the 12-step programs where meditation is emphasized and yet not really well described how to practice it. So there's people in recovery
0: dharma who use it as a supplement as well. So they can complement each other. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit of about recovery dharma And what does dharma mean for people out there that don't know what that term means? Can you explain that?
1: Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the recovery dharma meetings, there's a couple of readings that people go through just that we read kind of like in 12 step meetings where they read the 12 steps, the 12 traditions and the preamble. One of them that we read is called the practice. And so recovery dharma is kind of broken down into a couple of general categories. One is the practice of meditation and then attending recovery meetings And then there's this need to continue to study Buddhism, you know, in kind of an almost formal way where maybe there's a study of Buddhist teaching, some books or an association with Buddhist teachers outside of recovery dharma. So dharma often is the word used to describe the teachings of Buddhism, Um, but more broadly, it can be described as a sense of truth or a clear understanding of reality or teachings that are kind of wise and bring people into a sense of health and well-being and an ability to connect with the world. So it has less to do with a dogma of Buddhism, although that's frequently how it's used. And it has more to do with, all right, is there information in the world that's going to help me be in recovery and live a decent life, information that's reliable, that comes from trusted teachers, friends, maybe even from nature? You know, It's just a sense of the truth that's reliable and yet is part of my own personal experience and not something that's say fed to me in a dogmatic way.
0: Right, right, yeah, definitely. And I think when we're in that kind of state of addictive thinking, if you want to call it that, it's hard to get to that truth or to slow down to pay attention to the wisdom internally and externally. Yes, precisely. And so this gives a framework for individuals to be able to begin to practice that, I guess. That's what I hear you saying.
1: It really is. The aspect of it being a peer support group expands on this idea that one just gathers the wisdom of Dharma and Buddhism, though, and allows people to share that wisdom as each of us as humans encounters this sense of wisdom, as we get some degree of clarity in the process of pursuing recovery. In the peer structure, we're able to reflect and kind of co-regulate and build that sense of awareness. So it is really a shared wisdom Even though it's a path of empowerment where really we rely on our own inner wisdom since we're humans and we have so much in common when we share those glimpses of wisdom as we get them in the meetings. And that doesn't necessarily have to be like Buddhist wisdom. It can just be something about the day that happened where you had some insight and had to get through the day when there were some cravings. So that's part of how this dharma gets shared in a group setting. Right.
0: This energy. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's real practical information. The the energy that's there that comes from being open and sharing the experience gives people a a sense of togetherness and a sense of connectedness that doesn't happen in isolation. So the energy is a a sense of connection and, and wisdom and a little bit of trust. And also, since Recovery Dharma is so new, another aspect of the energy is this sense of exploration and hope and developing something new, kind of building a future and having a real progressive mindset.
0: Right. I'm thinking as you're talking, you know, kind of going back to someone who's struggling with addiction or depression or anxiety, to be able to settle the mind a little bit to get there, it sounds like this has some, is a starting point to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And since the
1: meetings start, I'm pretty sure maybe almost all the meetings start with a period of either silent or guided meditation. The process of sharing, which is where, you know, experience, strength, and hope, there's, in the very beginning of the meeting, this period where people do settle to some extent. And so when the sharing takes place, it, I think, comes from a little bit calmer, wiser space. Not necessarily, it really depends on a person's experience with meditation. But the meetings facilitate that sharing of wisdom through engaging in a practice that builds a sense of calm and equanimity.
0: Right. What about for people out there who may not know, can you talk a little bit about how Buddhism comes into play? Mm -hmm. So there have been books over the years about addiction and
1: Buddhism. However, the Four Noble Truths are usually used as the initial framework to show how addiction and Buddhism kind of go together, where the first noble truth is this idea that there's struggles, there's suffering, life is kind of difficult, and that can be described in a gazillion different ways. And you know, you've got this second one that, well, there's a cause for all this difficulty. It has to do with craving, wanting things to be different. In the addiction world, sometimes that wanting things to be different is couched in the description of the trauma that early in life people have where, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is so awful. Some experience, be it abuse, depression, mental illness, anything, and the addiction happens, that craving for things to be different. And then this idea, the third truth that, well, there's something we can do about this. There's got to be something, right? So it's that. So this third noble truth has to do with the fact that there is a way to be free from a life that's ruled by craving. There really is a way. And the reason that someone might even say, really, there is a way? And the way isn't necessarily because, well, that's not the point. And we're going to tell you the way. It's not like that. It's why would anybody even have the thought that I could recover? That's because people have a glimpse that, yeah, there is, there has to be. So the third truth is just there's a path to recovery. And then the fourth one is, well, here is a path, or here's a way the path could look. And so the Buddhist framework lays out the Eightfold Path. It's just, you know, a solution to this craving, this problem. So Buddhism can be interpreted very much as a treatment modality for addiction. It really can be, and it has been in the context of recovery dharma. And it brings in these other concepts of Buddhism outside of that structure of Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, which sounds very dogmatic, but brings in these other things like the cultivation of compassion, the cultivation of forgiveness, other things that when people think about Buddhism, they'll think, oh, being compassionate, you know, being calm, developing a sense of equanimity. You know, we've got a lot of images of Buddhism, right, that are peaceful, that are calm. It's almost an aesthetic that's out there, which maybe is kind of superficial, but it does point to an underlying ability, to be present and calm.
0: So it's almost in a way I hear you saying, tapping into that little piece of wisdom. Maybe when you're in addiction, you can't quite fully grasp it, but you know that there is something different. And then cultivating that slowly through time. You got it. it. You know, can get us to that space where we can have some peacefulness and some calmness. And it doesn't mean that life isn't difficult still, you know, stuff shows up, even if we don't like it, it still appears, but having cultivating that kind of ability to take the mind in that direction. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: It is. The word cultivation is a really good one with metaphors of you know, the ground with growing, with light, clarity. A lot of these kind of descriptions are just really useful to describe a sense of recovery that's very positive and very engaged in what's happening in our lives.
0: So can you share a little bit of your personal experience going through this process? Because I think at one level, intellectually, we can understand it. And then at another practical level, it's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me personally, and everybody's different. So
1: I had my initial experience with the 12 steps after, you know, early alcohol use disorder was setting in some intense depression, a suicide attempt, being very fearful of what would happen if I would start drinking again and finding the 12 steps to be a very supportive, structured environment. And it kind of educated me about what addiction can look like. And so that was my entry point into recovery. However, it didn't fit with my personality. And I felt, you know, is this kind of what you were asking for? This kind of thing? My sort of personal journey through it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. I think people can relate to that and understand it from that perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah because I really tried really hard to, you know, build friendships and have a sense of connection in the 12-step programs. And I would see other people really have a sense of camaraderie. But I continued to feel like an outsider, both because of having a spiritual mindset that was a little different, and partially because my addiction, I didn't have a similar personality. You know, my addiction came out of some really severe depression. Everybody has the depression, but I wasn't like a party or kind of person. I didn't have, it was really just a miss. I didn't fit with the feel of the meetings and the program. And as my life got better and I felt like, well, I don't really need this anymore. And so I moved away from it and I kind of lost a, like a group support system as my support became more of a stable life and just a, a wife and some family. And so I sort of you know, I just forgot that addiction was even a problem for me, you know, because my life just went on. And, you know, and then, and drinking wasn't a problem. But over time, and this is a good segue into one of the other reasons Recovery Dharma was great for me, I developed some, you know, pretty serious concerns with the use of internet pornography, just a compulsive use of pornography. And it's one of the compulsive behaviors and addictions that doesn't get a lot of public Discussion because it doesn't have the open face that drinking does. And also, with the applications of 12 step programs to recovery from something that's sex related, as much as 12 steps try to be very non Christian based. And I know this is getting kind of philosophical still and not personal, but nonetheless, embedded within the Judeo-Christian view are some inflexibility surrounding sexuality that can make it real challenging to have open conversations about that and not feel some shame. I think they're trying to change that. Um, But regardless of being in some of the meetings that addressed sex and porn addiction, I just found there was always an undercurrent, a little bit of shame and some of that that was there. So for me, that played into a role and that led me into some insight like oh my gosh, these cross addiction things are a little bit swept under the rug in 12-step programs. And I I didn't necessarily like that, even though I know it's really critical. And I had this that stopping that main big problem causing thing is important. I always wondered like, so why when people start drinking again, does it seem so bad? Even after years of drinking, it almost seems like it's progressed. And I had this insight, well, it's because there's these cross addictions. The addiction is still progressing, but it's sort of gone underneath the surface of awareness and denial has kicked in on these cross addictions. And so that drew me to this, all right, so really I have to have something that works with the craving, the underlying cause of, I keep wanting to do something because I just can't handle what's going on in my life, something to escape. And now, so that kind of part of that is what led me or has affirmed my faith in recovery dharma because it addresses sort of underlying causes. Now, I know from 12-step participation and sponsor interactions that there is a one-on-one or an outside-of-meeting discussion of these other compulsions. It's not like it's not talked about, but it happens on a more personal level. But that excludes this group wisdom sharing that can happen when people look right at the cause, this craving and this attachment, just live with life as it is.
0: Right. It's that deeper affect dysregulation that drives all of these compulsions to look outside of ourselves, to find some way to feel different than what we're feeling in the moment.
1: Yeah. So for me personally, it was both the mismatch with kind of the feel and the spiritual underpinnings, as well as some awareness of how cross addictions were at risk and not addressed in the 12 step paradigm very well. So that's how I personally, and then the meditation piece just came in because I had depression too. And I found a really good book called A Mindful Path Through Depression. And I was living in Boston at the time. And there's this really cool place in Boston called the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And so that gave me a real connection to a very solid sort of Buddhist community and gave me some faith that, wow, this is really something that people can do as a group, and it's cohesive, and it's not just a solitary meditation practice to work with your depression. So that's another piece of how I developed a sense of recovery dharma being, you know, meditation and peer support and addressing underlying affective causes for the development of addictions and their maintenance.
0: Right. So being able to kind of go through that is I guess what I hear you saying is going through that journey, you've got that big addiction out of the way, so to speak, but also found like, wait a minute, something's still going on here and these cross addictions start to manifest themselves. And then looking like for another way to help yourself and kind of found this and that resonated with you in a powerful way. Yeah, so that's my personal side of things. That's great. So what else do you want to add to this discussion?
1: Well, some things that are worth adding are, descriptions of the overall development of recovery dharma as a recovery path. I mean, outside of how I became interested in it and some of the Buddhist connections, there's the need to recognize that, it has, that it's a branch of refuge recovery. I want to be clear to say that it's not as if refuge recovery became recovery dharma. Refuge recovery still exists as a Buddhist recovery path. So it's important to emphasize that, just so the public they might be wondering, what's this refuge recovery recovery dharma stuff? So recovery dharma is a branch of it, and they're very very similar. Just there's been some changes in the literature, and you know who's recognized as the foundation of the program. Um, nonetheless, so there's been national conferences, both you know since the refuge recovery book was published in 2000, I think it was 14. There was a national conference in LA. You know, in 2015 and 2016. So this is a collaborative effort, even though my experience here in Boise is one where it's an ongoing challenge. You know, I'm one of few individuals that's, you know, had a physical presence at meetings in Boise for over the years. It's a challenge to maintain developing Refuge Recovery Dharma meetings. So going back to this idea that Recovery Dharma owes its foundations to refuge recovery, there has been an emphasis on it being a very level collective process where everybody, anybody can start a meeting. So there's online, when you just Google Recovery Dharma, you'll get to a website. The online folks are incredible. I kind of was a lurker in an online recovery business meeting. There was a Zoom meeting the other day because I just wanted to get a sense of what's going on out there in the online recovery world. And there's a group of individuals that are very dedicated. These online meetings have, you know, some of them upwards of 30 people. So there's an online presence. Anybody can start a meeting. Um, But just be aware if you do start a meeting, it can be a big challenge. And it's important to, you know, find some allies, at least one or two people to help cover opening the meetings and where to have meetings, too. If there's a local Buddhist meditation place or church or anywhere, anywhere, even where people have AA meetings, a lot of times they might be open to it depending on the the building and things like that.
0: So this is a growing community and you guys are working to get this resource out to people who might resonate with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, a couple of times I went with a friend to a local detox and presented at the time we refuge recovery. And, you know, I've spoke with other psychiatrists and social workers And there's a recognition in the professional community that this is a valuable growing recovery path. And I think it's important, too, if there's any professionals out there that end up listening to this, to really encourage them to investigate it a little bit and consider investing more efforts in referrals of individuals. With the caveat that this is a growing path and you, for structure for regular meetings, you really might want to try some 12-step meetings. But also to encourage people in Recovery Dharma, if there aren't Recovery Dharma meetings, that many just Buddhist meditation groups are a great place to go to learn about meditation. All by itself, meditation, if anything, even if, you know, one thing I want to say is just the benefits of a regular meditation practice as being a good part of any person's recovery. You know, I want to say that even if Recovery Dharma is like, no way, not interested in Buddhism. You know what I mean?
0: Right, yeah. That this might be a resource for you and encourage people to try it and see if it's a resource and see if it resonates with them. Uh Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think people out who are struggling with addiction, you know, there's no one right way and we all have to find it however we do it. And this could be a resource. So if anyone's listening to the podcast and they're listening to this and maybe they're struggling with addiction or maybe they have a loved one who struggled with addiction, what would you want to tell them?
1: I would tell them that recovery is an ongoing process. It's not about the substance or the behavior. It's about what's happened across your whole life about reestablishing healthy relationships, being open to different possibilities. And also just the reality that a lot of people, the recovery process, it just happens, you know, recovery paths and support groups, they're not totally necessary. So many times people are, they get the impression that if I don't get a meeting or a path, I just can't make it. And the reality that most people get through their addictions. And, you know, I would just encourage generally that there's hope. And also that not to have the goal to be some kind of gonna be sober for my whole life and have this holy grail of continuous sobriety, you know, go. I mean, that's great to have this goal, but it's much more, you know, just try to have a realistic assessment of like, what's going on in my life? What what do I need to do? You know, so just to start small, and, you know, just to be realistic about it. I've seen what seemed like a lot of hopeless cases, both in recovery programs and at the hospital where I work. And, you know, sometimes it is hopeless and it's just really sad. But anyway, you know, it's a really tough thing to say to encourage other people because I know it's so personal and it can just be really, really frightening. But yeah, I don't know. It's tough to,
0: to give people encouragement. Right. Well, you know, recovery is hard, but what I hear you saying is, you know, start in the present moment take small steps and move forward and reach out for help. And there's resources out there and find what fits for you. 12 step recovery, Dharma, both a mixture, something else, therapy, all of that. Yeah,
1: definitely. The other thing I'll say too, is that this is to people who might be interested in recovery. Dharma is we need people to be brave enough to help build recovery. Dharma as a path. And, you know, it just needs courage, you know, And that courage comes from, you know, inside. We can't borrow each other's stories to give us courage. We have to really know our own story. And so, you know, it's not just being present mindfulness of what's happening in the world. It's being present with our own story so we can be realistic about what we need to do, not based on, you know, what someone else says we need to do. But we can still listen to the people who care about us when we do reach out for help. So that's an extra bit.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. How can people find you? If they want more information, where can they go? How can you get that?
1: You know, for me in particular, if you Google Recovery Dharma Boise, I'm an admin on the Facebook page and we've got Meetup connected to it. So that'll get you to me and maybe a couple other folks in Boise. But in general, you know, you Google Recovery Dharma and the Recovery Dharma book that's posted online as... Well, if you want the electronic copy, you can get that one free. But it's on Amazon as a hard copy, too, for like six bucks or something like that. So the online stuff is great. Huge shout out to the online folks. And also Refuge Recovery is still out there. So we just, we owe a lot. Everybody online is just, (laughs) they do so much. They help so much. Right.
0: Definitely. So what I can do, too, is I can put all those links in the show notes as well on theaddictedmind.com. So people can go there and find it as well. Josh, thank you for coming on to The Addicted Mind and sharing your wisdom and your compassion.
1: Well, great, Dwayne. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show. I was so excited. I just want to hear more people talking about this and participating, and I'm so glad you create an online venue for this kind of message to be out there.
0: Well, thank you. So before we end this episode, I want to share Stephanie's message of hope She talks about how she worked hard to overcome her own anxiety and find a way to bring calm to her life. So Stephanie, thank you for sharing your message of hope. And let's listen to that now.
2: Since I could remember I've lived in negativity and losing my father, suffering major panic attacks, getting a divorce and losing my husband did not help my skepticism about my future. I thought I was destined to be unhappy. I lost any hope I had left as my life came to a halt. No matter how emotionally heavy things got for me, somehow deep down inside, I wanted to believe I could be happy. One day while crying my eyes out from depression, I realized that there are times when life's troubles aren't always meant to be solved. And if I wanted to live my best life ever, I needed to change my thinking patterns and the way I handled life's struggles. When things went terrible in my life, I would quickly look for a door to get out, and if the door was locked, I would panic and my negative thinking spiraled out of control. I had to eventually train myself that if the door was locked, I needed to look for a window, and if there wasn't one, I had to search for another, because there had to be something that was open. With hope and determination, there is a way out. Feeling stuck and depressed will only take you into a never-ending journey of stagnation, doubt and pity. Nothing good comes out of this type of thinking. In life, there are many challenges. There's a time to mourn or celebrate, a time to fight or rejoice, a time to question or trust, but there's one thing we always hold on to, and that is hope.
0: All right, thank you for sharing, Stephanie. And if you wanna share your message of hope, just go to the Addicted Mind podcast, click on the tab on the side and share a 90-second audio clip of your message of hope. I want to get your voices out there so that people know that recovery is possible, that change is possible, and that hope is out there if you are suffering. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And all the show notes will be at theaddictivemind.com forward slash 88. Once again, if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure. And also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind Podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.